Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. David Hildebrand. Dr. Hildebrand is a specialist in early American music, teaches American music history at the Peabody Conservatory, and is an author for the Johns Hopkins University Press. He regularly performs and lectures at museums, historical societies, and universities, often in duet with his wife, Ginger. Today, David discusses how he came to study early American music and the political power of song during the Revolutionary period. You'll also hear short segments of David's musical performances. And now, Drs. Hildebrand and Bradburn. Hi, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. I'm delighted to welcome you back to this conversation, and particularly to welcome a very special guest, uh, David Hildebrand. David, welcome to Mount Vernon. I feel very welcome. Thank you. Now, David Hildebrand, many of you may know him, uh, is, of course, a renowned uh, musicologist, uh, a renowned performer, uh, an interpreter of 18th century music of, of uh, many varieties. He's done it all over the place. He's done it in Colonial Williamsburg at the National Archives. He's done it in Mount Vernon. He's done it. You've done it in Monticello, haven't you? You've been out there? You know, oh. never set foot there. You people out there in Charlottesville, you need to invite him out because he is the man who knows uh, what Jefferson listened to, uh, when he listened to it, and what he liked and disliked. And he could play it for you as well. So he's uh, a tremendous uh, resource for those of us who are in the public history game and in the academic history game. And so we're delighted to have him here. Uh, now, David has a long history with Mount Vernon, going back many years, and in fact, put out a very uh, wonderful uh, CD and uh, and book about music, George Washington's music. What is the title of it uh, exactly? 99, I think. It's George Washington, Music for the First President. Yeah, right, uh, with, with Kate Van Winkle Keller. Full-length recording features vocal and instrumental music, including extensive historical background notes. Now, is that still available for people to get at the uh, at the Mount Vernon webpage? Believe it or not, yes, uh, it's at the bookstore in hard copy form. CDs, unfortunately, are falling by the wayside each year. <laughs> they get less and less uh, acceptable, and pretty soon they'll be collector's items. Who knows? Well, we'll have to find a way to distribute the MP3, MP3s or. We're up on iTunes. Yeah. Pe people find us that oh, good. way. Yeah, so the whole album could be downloaded there. Yeah, sure. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to try, in the course of this conversation, uh, we're going to try to in intersperse some of the music of David's as we, uh, when appropriate. Um, but let's begin at the beginning. Uh, you're a great performer, um, but you also have a Ph.D. in musicology. Uh, what, uh, what drove you into this field, I guess? Happenstance. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved music, and I took a decade's worth of piano lessons when I was a kid and picked up guitar on my own because at that time that was the cool thing to do, and I'm glad I did. Mm. Self-taught. Yeah. Uh, I learned a lot about the social, uh, the fun of getting together with people and playing yeah. music informally. In fact, we still do that recreationally, even though music is our profession. Were you in a garage band in high school? Actually, no, but... <laughs> About but you performed. You performed in. Well, I played. I played with buddies. We jammed. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have a band per se then. Mm -hmm. But what's funny is, in um, about 15 years ago, in, in middle age, uh, <laughs> a bunch of us guys uh, realized that we played different instruments in my neighborhood, and we formed a band uh, called Minivan Halen because <laughs> we all drove minivans. <laughs> and, and we didn't do any Van uh, Halen, but um, <laughs> we played a lot of covers and and. Yeah. Until just a couple years ago, uh, we had a, a good time with that. Mm -hmm. Go goofed around a lot. Had That's fun. fun. What kind of music did you like in high school? I was a real fan of the Beatles and James Taylor and uh, Jethro Tull, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, very, very uh, intriguing Jethro Tull. guy. Ian Anderson. Songwriter. Well, it, it, the man's name was Ian Anderson. Okay. But he came up with a band name of Jethro Tull. 
which connects us back to the 18th century. Yeah, it's a great Washington connection, the yeah. great agricultural In fact, writer. There's, yeah, his book, there's a label sticking out of the top shelf of the library with Jethro Tull on it. I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, the, the original Jethro Tull, absolutely. So, okay, so uh, you were always interested in music. Uh, you were a piano player. You picked up the guitar. You're later going to go on to pick up the, uh, the German flute mm-hmm. and the other flute, the English flute. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between the German flute and the English flute? Well, the German is the predecessor of the modern transverse flute that's okay. commonly made out of metal. You right. know, in the old the days. one you hold up like... Sideways. I'm yeah. making, for those of you who aren't watching on the TV version, I'm holding yeah. up my hands. He's holding them improperly, just I so will. you all know. <laughs> that's great. Do they, you go on this side of the body, or the, what, what is it? It's Yes, off, off to your right. And, well, and that's what I did. I did that. What was I doing well, wrong? Well, the Good. left hand it's gonna be faces in and right hand faces out to cover the buttons. Like oh, so this hand was wrong. Yeah, yeah, okay. There you go. All right, okay. In fact, some of those horrible pictures of Washington playing the fife yeah. show him pl- with his hands in the wrong position anyway. even though. Yeah, well, we know Washington didn't play a, a note as nope. he himself wrote. Where did, these, where did that come from in the night? Do you know? Those same images, pla- those 19th century? Same place as the cherry tree. Yeah. And, uh, wow. I think you know people were just so hip on yeah. what a great guy he was and, and how important he was that they started inventing things. There's a painting of George Washington playing the flute that dates yeah. to 1810. Okay, that early. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, but it's interesting because um, one of the pieces I've been working on here in the library uh, is... The correspondence between Francis Hopkinson, who was very musical, yeah, and George right. Washington, and we have a couple of key letters in the late 1780s that really outline and affirm the fact that as much as Washington loved music, that he wouldn't sing and he couldn't play notes, yeah. and and uh, that was just not his thing to participate in the music, but he loved to hear it. Yeah, right. Uh, well, we'll get to we'll get to Washington in due course, David. Okay. Let's not run too far fast. Right now, we're we're looking at David Hildebrand. Mm-hmm. Now, David Hildebrand uh, enjoyed his music in in high school, and he played his instruments. But now he, he goes on at some point uh, to get a PhD in musicology. Where did that drive come from? Well, there was a big break actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I did go straight to college from high school, but mm-hmm. on the presumption that I couldn't pursue my love of music because mm. I'd never make a living, right? I uh, ended up with a degree in geology, uh, yes. a bachelor's in geology. And just after graduating, well, luckily during college, I continued to play informally with buddies in the sure. coffee houses, and, and I met Ginger, who would become my wife. Uh, and she and other buddies even right after I graduated, we would get together periodically, and I invited a bunch of them down to Annapolis, my hometown, mm. to play in bars and goof off and just you know try now, to replicate. Now, at this point, were you getting more into the 18th century music? No, not, oh. not yet. Okay, so it's sort of more like American folk music. Exactly. We're still yeah. doing the same kind of stuff, although Ginger had picked up the fiddle. Okay. So she could sing and play guitar, but we now had a fiddle. Mm. And uh, then in the summer of 80, uh, I figured, what the heck, I'm lonely down here. My buddies are still up, you know, dispersed in college in a way. I invited Ginger down to Annapolis to come and just play in bars and see what happened, have mm. some fun. And by halfway through the summer, people had been asking us, you know, in normal clothing, in a normal restaurant or bar, playing normal modern instruments, they go, hey, Annapolis is a colonial town, ain't it? You right. do any colonial music? Oh, great. And the yeah. first time we look at each other like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And by the second time, we look at each other and go, well, okay. And by the third time, someone asked us, and this is early in the summer, uh, we had already sent away for a little music book from Williamsburg. Mm. And so by the third time, we could say, yeah, actually, here's a song. And it turns out it, one of the f- those first few songs we learned uh, is in the Bullfinch music book. That, is that, that right? Martha and purchased so what, many years What was ago. that? What was the song? It's called The Fly, Busy, oh, Curious, yeah. Thirsty Fly. It's a drinking song. You told me not. about this. Yeah. It's a hoot. It's yeah. a great song. Yeah. So anyway, that we had no intention of getting into history, uh, but when we suddenly realized that there were these historic sites mm. and we started contacting them and saying, would you be interested in the concert? They said, yeah, this is great. Yeah. So by in the course of this one summer, mm. all of a sudden we're busy playing at the William Peca House, at the Hammond Harwood House, these gorgeous places in Annapolis. And the summer's starting to wind down, and we look at each other and go, you know, hey, 
are you really going to go back to college, Ginger? And am I really going to keep my day job working as a geologist? Or do you want to <laughs> like see where this goes? Fun. And that's what we did. And we've been running ever since. It's been a great lifelong partnership. You guys yes. got married at some point. We did. That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, what a great story of romance and music. Well, it, it's, it is, it's kind of spectacular. Yeah. Um, it'd be cool if we made money, too. But <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm so delighted to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing, you know, how, how you've developed as an expert in that field, you know, um, through, through performance and, uh, and through your own research now. So you went on to get this Ph.D. in musicology, and your dissertation studied musical life in and around Annapolis, mm -hmm. Maryland. Uh, from the 1600s until uh, the revolution. Right. So, what did you uh, what did you discover there that you would add to your uh, your thinking? Just that there's a lot of music out there, yeah. and a lot of it's good music, hmm. good solid melodies that have survived. Many of them have survived the test of time and have stayed current in one way or the other, uh, such that you. They're attractive, and you don't get tired of them. And, mm. and there are mm. plenty more if you do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I guess you know that when you're a freelancer, you're a bit dependent upon the need for your services. And so, uh, as the years were going on, as I was researching and writing and defending, we were getting calls from various places, and you know, uh, perhaps a, a site with an association with Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you know, do you do do you know anything about music? And Franklin, so I'd go to a library and I'd buff up on what's been written about Franklin. Mm. That ended up being a whole CD and music book project later. Um, you find a lot of gaps in the literature. I mean, in the in the course of this, you must have discovered that wow, there's there's a lot written about this kind of music, mm -hmm. but not a lot about this kind of music. Where did you, where did you kind of see the gaps as you were coming up in the field? The uh, the secondary source scholarly world on music is still very weak. Mm. Uh, almost entirely the first studies focused on New England and church music mm -hmm. and uh, the Puritans, and they discovered William Billings, who was a very important kind of the first big name uh, composer and professional you know, musician in, uh, in America. But there, there was interest in Washington, of course, that goes back to the bicentennial of his birth. You know, right. in, the, in the 1930s, there were several books about uh, George Washington and music, and, and some of that scholarship was decent. But in terms of overview, um, a lot of what I was seeing, it just lacked the connection. Yeah. It needed sort of that, that social historical perspective mm -hmm. of, you know, w just because you don't have a document um, doesn't mean that people weren't doing something. Mm. And so I had to learn yeah, how to, right. to, to, exactly, to sort yeah. of wring out of estate inventories and newspaper uh, runaway slave ads, things like yeah. that, um, account books, government records. You have to go and, and take that classic social historical approach yeah. and start to, you know, it, and let it sort of pile up. And, and as it did, it's really an amazingly rich way to get at history. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely falls in line with sort of the regional geographic differences between, mm -hmm. you know, the middle colonies with the Dutch and the Pencil, you know, the Germans and, and the Moravians and uh, all sorts of really diverse music going on there as opposed to the South with the reports by Philip Fithian and, and the accounts of music making as far down as Charleston. Mm. And compared to, you know, Boston and, and the... Uh, the rise of, of really music. Um, it's amazing what music literacy was like in New England. Yeah. Well, what I think is wonderful about the work that you've done over the course of your career is precisely that that social element of uh, of the experience of music culture because it's such an important part of the people's lived experience in the 18th century. But it's so difficult to get at through. You have to be. You know, you you know you, your ability to perform it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is stuff that people listened to, that they heard, that they right. danced to, that they wrote, um, and and um, you know, and so it doesn't really do justice just to say, oh, well, they sang these tavern songs, or or something like that, or there was a heritage that was, you know, in, yeah. inherited from the the English, and adapted in these ways. So, 
Well, I think, yeah, the proof is often in the pudding, Mm. too. If if you look at, you know, some of the good biographies that have been done. Yeah. They they don't even, the author doesn't consider using a musical avenue to to learn more or to reinforce other facts or opinions about people. Well, so give a good example. How would that uh, enhance? I know you've done a lot of work with Charles Carroll, for instance. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do, uh, if if we don't have the musical side of the Carroll story in there, what do we miss? Well, Carol's, Carol's daughters actually played a role very similar to what Nellie Custis played here, mm. sort of the musical ambassadors of the family, mm. you know, to uh, entertain guests and, and uh, soothe the savage beast if <laughs> the conversation got a bit rough. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, so they're <laughs> fundamental. I mean, you can't, you can't understand that the way people live without the sense of the music. Well, it, yeah. I, you may think I'm taking it too far, and I, no, I get I carried no. no, I get carried away with it. But yeah. the truth is that that almost every aspect, as you break history down into components of you know political history, church history, social history, uh, gender studies, uh, ethnic, racial things, you know, almost every way that you try to get at history, there's a musical com- mm. component. Yeah, and um, that became especially clear. Going back about five or six years ago, we were approaching the bicentennial of the War of 1812 coming Mm. to America. Um, The highlight of which, of course, is Francis Scott Keyes writing new lyrics for an old tune and giving us our national anthem. In in studying that period and looking at how incredibly powerful were the lyrics to songs being written, you know, for and against Jefferson's embargo, for instance, for and against Madison when he declared war. Mm. Um, you know, the power, the political power of song uh, is extremely yeah. present yeah. then, a- as it was during the constitutional period and the yeah. rise of the anti-federalism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, now it's a, uh, I remember that, so there's a song called the Sedition Act. So I, I did a lot of work on the Alien Sedition Acts and my work on citizenship. And uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a moment where the, in the high federalist kind of moment where the quasi-war is breaking out and they're passing the Alien Sedition Acts and uh, there's all these uh, these uh, federalists who are singing, you know, some federalist song in New York City mm-hmm. and they're kind of going around intimidating these uh, sailors, these French sailors or sailors that are, you know, associated with the, the French Revolution or seen as that way. And then they, they have a scene which could have been on a West Side Story in which a bunch of these guys come out and they, they have this kind of sing-off where the, mm-hmm. the guys who are sympathetic with the French are singing La Marseille or Caira or some mm-hmm. you know aggressive French revolutionary song and the other guys are singing, um, yeah, it's Hail Columbia. So it's after, it's, it's right after Hail Columbia is premiered in, that, uh, you know, the, in the spring of 1798. So it's uh, Have a, you read Abigail moment. Adams' description of being at the performance? I, I have. Tell, the, tell that story. Though. Well, yeah. I, it's fresh in my mind because yeah. uh, I was just... The, the, the story between the President's March and how it morphed into Hail Columbia... Yeah, yeah talk is, about that. ...is a good one. I'd be happy yeah. to retell it. Yeah. Um, well, sure, let's start. At yeah. Trenton in 1776, mm. one of those Hessians... Uh, not a soldier, but a musician who was under the employ of the Hessian officers, mm. uh, was captured along with the rest of the Hessian band. Right. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're talking Christmas '76. By July 4, '77. So we'll, we'll put a we'll come we'll keep the story going, but let's put a pause on it. What would the Hessian band? What kind of instruments were they? Horns? I imagine horns. When yeah, I think it's, about it's a Hessian win- band, and it's maybe a, a big w- drum. They definitely had kettle drums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a bunch of kettle drums. We captured. I'd love to know what ended up with them. Yeah, good question. These, these. Uh, Maybe they're in West Point. Who well, knows? these are the guys that you, you you've seen reference to this in newspaper descriptions of toasts and so forth. The band of music played this, or the yeah. band of music did that. It sounds redundant to us, mm. but a band of music, very specifically, was an ensemble of wind instruments: French horn, oboe, bassoon, and clarinet. Okay. Usually two of each. Uh, sometimes a bugle might show up, the kettle drums, if you're doing really well. But it's a it's a different sound. It's not the brass sound of John Philip Sousa. Right. Yeah. Much later. Yeah. And so those and the instruments were captured. There's an inventory mm. of the instruments that, mm. that the Americans captured at Trenton. Uh, so yeah, and that's a that's a cool sound. It's a different kind of a sound. Mm. The uh, the version of the President's March, which is where this is going, because. 
one of these musicians, um, his name was Philip File. Uh, he helped the immediately following July 4th, the first really public uh, ceremony in Philadelphia of celebrating Declaration of Independence in 1777, the Hessian band played American tunes. Is that right? Yeah, they all so this captured parole. prisoner band. Well, they were paroled. Right, so they're hanging around Philadelphia. And that many the of them end up becoming American citizens mm. and, and conducting the theater orchestra in Philadelphia. Really? And so Philip File, <laughs> as Washington is preparing to go to New York for his first inaugural, that's when this Hessian writes the President's March, which becomes, when words are later put to it in 1798, mm. it becomes Hail Columbia, mm. which was arguably our national anthem in so, the 19th century. Well, I think you're right. So wh where was the President's March performed again? Just the It was in Philadelphia. R right. Uh, okay. So when he was on his way oh, to be inaugurated. Uh, it was debuted in Philadelphia. Okay. But, uh, okay. And I'm not sure when they first caught him. But I know they did it uh, in New York Harbor, along with okay. some of the other music that's been um, associated yeah. with that. He Comes, The Hero Comes was sung for him from boats. <laughs> oh, Harbor. right, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then flash forward to John Adams' term, and, and Joseph Hopkinson mm -hmm. writes uh, Hail Columbia to go right. with the President's March. Well, what's really cool is how many connections there are back here to Washington. You don't want me to talk about Washington, but I want to get no, no, him in right away. We can talk about him now. Because, yeah, we're, well, we're, yeah. it... The tune, President's March, was so popular that it, it was How does it go? Can you give us a... Sure. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah, it's... Dun, dun, ba -dum, bum, bum, dun, dun, da -dum, da -dum, da -da -da bum, ba -dum, bum, ba -da 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 bum, it's a, it's a real march. Yeah. It's, it's got that it's military great. dotted rhythm. And, yeah. and, and if you listen carefully during the next inaugural, the vice president is greeted by the Marine band playing that melody. Really? Because it's What's true. it called now by the Marine? The it's still called the oh, President's so March. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they play it for the Vice President because Hail to the Chief ended up displacing the President's March around 1825. Really? Yeah. So the President's Hail to the Chief? A guy named Sanderson. Okay. Well, yeah, it was we'll a setting. Back. Yeah, I could we'll go back to the go Forget it. It's the 19th century. It's crazy. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Crazy things happened. Right. Washington right. died. Right, right. Who knows? Yeah. No, so Joseph Hopkinson is approached by an actor, a fellow named Gilbert Fox. Mm -hmm. who's about to do his own benefit show. And that's where actors make all their money for the year, really, as they're paid pittance through the year, but when they get to do their own benefit, all their friends come and they throw money up on the stage and, mm -hmm. and they do well. So he said, I've really believed in the potential of this President's March having words written to it. Could you mm -hmm. write some really good Federalist words to yeah. it? <laughs> and that's exactly what Joseph Hopkinson does. Yeah. And the people go nuts. It's uh, supposedly it's encored like eight times. Yeah, and that's the Abigail Adams letter. Yeah, and she talks about, of course, having a headache by the time all the noise is done. Apparently, she gets a headache over just about anything. And I guess so. Is this, this is I don't know if it's common, but this happens when popular songs are debuted that they want them to play them again so they can learn them, right? Yeah. And they want to sing along and they right. want to learn the words, and so it's like, okay, let's do it again. The audience. Learns it basically. Sure, because this yeah. is centuries before yeah. cassette tapes and iPods yeah. and you know internet music that you can repeat over and over. Yeah. So anyway, that the melody then. Well, it does spread like wildfire that uh, summer of 1798 and amongst the Federalists for sure. Yeah. And Nellie Custis, it's in her hand that we have one of the earlier copies, and and I mm -hmm. believe at the top Harvard owns this. It's a single sheet, and I believe at the top it says new words to the. President's March. Oh, right. And then it begins, Hail Columbia, Columbia happy, happy, happy land. land. Yeah. Band of Brothers, have we met them? Already? It's in there. It is. Yeah. And then yeah. that itself gets parodied. Parody is the term for putting new words to an old tune. Mm. Um, so anyway, I, it, it's a cool story because it connects us to our national anthem. It yeah. connects us to you know, Washington's legacy as, you know, the first president with a piece of music that carries on to the next three or four as well before it gets displaced. Um, it connects um, to um, women like Nellie Custis and, and Abigail Adams who mm -hmm. have experiences with this exact piece of music. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's, a, it's so underwritten in terms of the, the politics of that period, the importance of songs. Um, to really bring a community together at different class levels around 
around ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we're always trying to get at what was the ideas of the common people in this moment. And songs are one of the best ways to, to, to recognize that they are engaged in these political contests. They are, yeah. and I have trouble keeping my mouth shut in, <laughs> in public situations. Well, remember in the <laughs> symposium, um, there was a talk about Genet, the French mm-hmm. yep. Miss Ambassador, or whatever you want to call him, mm-hmm. trouble, the rabble rouser. Mm-hmm. That's the first American parody of the Anacreontic song. Oh, it is, is against Genet. Is it really? Yeah. And and uh, so, in other words, the Anacreontic song being the source of the national anthem melody. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a song against Genet. Uh, that shows up in the papers while he's in town, and it and it works all the way down through history. I mean, the Capitol steps. Well, you know, where would they be without <laughs> well, you know, doing <laughs> making parodies on songs from you know Oklahoma and yeah. other musicals like that? Well, we're living in, in an age of of the Hamilton musical, of course, of course which is slightly taking yeah. the uh, taking Broadway by storm and the and the imagination of many many people as well to get it our, our favorite era. Um, but so, uh, but so political music. Uh, how does it change? Um, in the seventy nineties, I have a good sense of it because I've researched that uh, quite a bit. But how does it change? Say from George Washington's youth in Virginia. Are there really political songs that we know of, or is it? Um, I mean, wh- or, or or is that more of a, a phenomenon that you see emerging later in the United States and it's and it's more popular kind of orientation what do you what do you think I don't really see much political music before in your Maryland study you would have all this yeah well that too but um, it's all about the politics and and we didn't really have a lot to argue about politically until the taxes began to Mm. be imposed upon us after the French and Indian Wars Mm. and so you know the anti-taxation songs Mm. uh, Dickinson's uh, John Dickinson's Liberty Song 1768 um, by many it's considered sort of the prototypical a political song, mm. and which is published in a newspaper to the tune um, that lots of people knew, uh, the uh, Hearts of Oak, uh, the oh, song sure. about the yeah. British Navy. Yeah, And almost immediately, some Tories in Boston write a parody back yeah. against Dickinson's version, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, how dare you raise these issues and so forth. And, and, and you see in the same way that Dickinson had you know, these letter uh, campaigns back and forth through the newspapers with just written letters. We see lyrics of songs doing the same thing. Mm. With, when everybody knows the tune, it's easy to get them extra charged. So I don't see much before the mid to late 1760s. Yeah. But from that point on, it never stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what was the, um, so so what would a typical country dance look like if you, uh, you know, bef- without this political, I mean, I assume people didn't do a lot of political music at these kind of things because you didn't want to, I mean, it wasn't really the right forum for it. So, so mm. what were the songs that people were hearing in Maryland, in the Chesapeake, and in Washington's, you know, in his youth, 19 to, to 30, basically, when he's sort of on the scene in Williamsburg or yeah, in Annapolis? Yeah. Or the theater is a good source for a lot of music. Yeah. Um, he, w- he was a fan of the Beggar's Opera, uh, attended it twice hmm. um, another one of Martha's books and is uh, that something then they would take back to a place like Belvoir and perform absolutely yeah absolutely and the same way you you'd come back from Broadway maybe with mm-hmm. a recording or a piano vocal score that you could sit down and yeah. play your favorite songs from Broadway very same thing going on mm-hmm. and the music libraries reflect that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people had scores to the beggars opera to the poor soldier Rosina, Love in a Village was very, very popular. And so if these songs begin at the theater, who knows where they're going to go thereafter. The melodies could end up being picked up by the fifers and, uh, mm. uh, you know, amongst the foot soldiers, or the melodies are going to be picked up by uh, some, I guess the, another category of song you'd call the convivial song. Yeah. And that's just silly, you know, drinking songs, goofy songs, songs with uh, punchlines to mm. them. Mm-hmm. And often uh, where there would be solo verses and then everyone chimes in in a chorus. Yeah. It could be a, a simple, very simple chorus, but it's all participatory. So one of the things that you, you know, of course there's these balls, right? And everybody mm-hmm. knows from their, their Jane Austen movies about the balls and all right. this in the British context. And of course, those of us who study the 18th century, we know about these balls that go on. Late. I mean, they they start 
pretty, I mean, really, I guess they start fairly late-ish, 8 o'clock or so, and then they'll go on until 4 in the morning or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, is there, and there'll be music and dancing. Yeah, that'll be instrumental there singing music. and carousing? I mean, do you? Yeah, I have not, I would defer to some of the dance historians yeah. who, who yeah. know the sources better than I do off the tops of their heads. Mm. Um, but uh, for the most part, what you're looking at is instrumental music. You would hire a fiddler or two. Uh, if you're lucky, uh, maybe it's in a great home with a harpsichord and you can get a professional mm. musician perhaps to play along with the fiddlers to the accompany the dancing. I don't know about singing so much then. Usually the men who don't want to dance, they sneak off and drink and play cards at yep. the other end of the room. Um, but the dancing... Still happens. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly does. And, and there are rules to it. I, I have looked at a number of assembly rules when you sign up and you mm. pay and you buy a subscription assembly or an assembly subscription um, that quite often it specifies that uh, a man may not show up without a woman or that the the proportion of men and women who are actually going to dance, like today, is always a little off. But since you mentioned that, often the progress of a formal ball or dancing assembly is it starts very high with the minuets, one couple at a time. Everyone's standing in the periphery looking and, you know, the punch checking hasn't kicked out. in yet either. They're starting, I'm sure. <laughs> but they're checking out, you know, everyone's yeah. posture and then their clothing. The new dress that uh, Miss So-and-so has mm-hmm. got on. And, yeah. and then each couple dancing downward in class order within that mm. extreme upper class. Mm. Uh, and such that once all the minuets are done, that's when you can do the, the line dances, mm. the country dances per se. And... I've been amazed at some of the reports at what can happen later. They really can go on. Yeah, how long to, they go on? Yeah. Till dawn. Yeah, they can. Now that's that's the extraordinary thing that mm-hmm. some of these balls that you read about in the governor's mansion in Williamsburg mm-hmm. or in Alexandria going yeah. on and on. Now um, that hierarchical characteristic of an elite event, it would be very different in New England in, in this or not. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They they used to say century ago that um, you know the Puritans never danced. That's not true. Puritans danced, but just in the privacy of their homes and mm-hmm. in small gatherings, and they didn't gussy up as much. Um, I mean, dancing is a good recreation. It's, mm-hmm. good, it's good exercise. Mm-hmm. Keeps you warm in the wintertime, <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, the music and dance in New England is, it's just of a different ilk. There are plenty of instruments there. Uh, it's just not as showy. Mm-hmm. Theater, however, uh, often these same theatrical troops that might play in Williamsburg, Annapolis, Philadelphia, New York, they'll be turned away at the gates of Boston. <laughs> it, it, it just, you know, it wasn't until much later in the 18th century. It was beyond the pale yeah. for the early period. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, actually back to the dance, because I think this is a fairly recent discovery for me, at least. Um, the more... The interactions and and the interplay between the European-based white music and the African-based music of the enslaved, it keeps getting pushed further back into time Mm. in ways that I think are quite important. Uh, One way that it happens is is a little, it's it's kind of right at the end of Washington's life in the Second Great Awakening, when, when people, especially in the South and in the middle colonies, are caught up in uh, camp meetings and going out of doors in large groups and following evangelical um, preaching and yeah. singing and stuff. Mm-hmm. That where the, um, in many cases, there would be spread out over an open field in the summertime, there would be the white section, there would be the black section. And a, a lot of whites would gravitate over just to observe a very different kind of a music. Mm. Much more like you know gospel music we think of today with call and response singing and mm-hmm. much more energetic, um, and believe it or not, that interaction spills over into the dance floor. That as early as the 1760s now we're finding reference to maybe not here at Mount Vernon, <laughs> but at some great houses and maybe less great houses that the punch has been flowing long enough that some of the white young dancers try to emulate the dancing of the slaves mm. that they've seen around them. Mm. And they and develop what are known as cutout jigs. And a, and a cutout being very much that you dance with one partner until someone comes and 
Oh, really? Yeah. Bumps you out. Moves you out of the way, yeah. It's almost like a first dance sequence at a wedding, yeah. that tradition, but I'm sure it was a lot more violent. Because <laughs> um, some, you know, some of these descriptions come from the pens of ministers who mm. say, you know, this shouldn't be happening. It's right, yeah, so the critiquing of this, yeah. uh, this type of thing, the youth are, yeah. the youth, uh, you know how oh. it is with the, with the youth and their music. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You bet. Always on the cutting edge. So, interesting. So, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the research you've been doing recently here. Mm-hmm. Now, well, well, actually, let me pause on that. Now, you, you've you been uh, working for a long time on a, on a, a, a big book that's going to be coming out uh, hopefully next year, Johns Hopkins Press, about uh, the music of Maryland over many centuries. And and uh, you have a co-author. You're responsible for the part that goes up to the Civil War. Yes. Is that, yes. Is that right? And so... Um, what will people uh, be able to read about in that book? A wide variety of things. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of a survey. Yeah. I mean, to write a comprehensive history of music, even specific to one colony slash state, it takes a lot more than the, I don't know, I guess I have 200 pages or so out of 400. <laughs> um, but uh, it'll cover, it'll touch upon, you know, work music, uh, the music of the Irish immigrants, uh, the uh, earliest church music here in the Chesapeake region was was very much dominated by the Anglicans, of course, but but Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony. Mm. And although they had to worship underground most of the colonial period, uh, we we see uh, evidence of uh, services being performed in private, and then we see this flowering of the Catholic Church in Baltimore, Mm. where the first pro-basilica is built early in the 19th century. Uh, you'll see stuff about, um, you know, what did sailors sing as they came into the ports of Baltimore and Annapolis. Mm. Um, it's, I try as much as I can in my half of the book uh, to give even coverage to yeah, the, it's you know, Charles. comprehensive Charl- account. Yeah, with people like Charles Carroll in the position of wealth, as was Washington here. Likewise, with musical instruments for his uh, offspring and, mm. and uh, daughters in particular to play. Uh, there'll be a lot of stuff. It is definitely coming out at the um, through Hopkins. It was slated for spring 17, but I think it's going to be summer of 17. Yeah, well, well, congratulations. We look forward to that. So, um, what, so you've been working here on a variety of different things over time, but uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the work you've been doing with Francis Hopkinson and, and what you're finding there? Sure. Sure. Hopkinson's name, there was an entire booklet written about Hopkinson uh, over a hundred years ago by Oscar Sonic. Sonic was the first um, head of the music division of the Library of Congress. He was appointed around 1905, I Hmm. think. Uh, S-O-N-N-E-C-K. He was a German and um, very excellent uh, archival work that he did far ahead of his day yeah. of going and reading newspapers and taking incredible notes and the stuff that's easy for us now he did the hard way mm. and uh, among his books he did one on early opera in America he did one on early concert life in America then he wrote short booklets on Francis Hopkinson and then one on James Lyons mm. and Hopkinson stands out because well the more I've read about him the more I think he had a pretty big ego uh, <laughs> he, he liked himself a lot they liked to be in the public eye. And it sounded too. And, <laughs> yeah. And, but as an amateur musician and also a wealthier, educated man. Yeah, he's a judge, isn't he? He he's ends up as the judge, judge of the admiralty. Yeah. Right, yeah. And then in, uh, even as a college student, though, he's, he composes music that he plays at his own graduation, and he's writing <laughs> little farcical things. He's, uh, his writings are voluminous. Mm. And um, yet he corresponded with Jefferson about how do we improve the method to requill harpsichords. He corresponded with a couple of um, Scottish uh, professional musicians, one of whom came to Philadelphia. He tried to set himself up as an importer of musical instruments. Um, He did all these things. And then uh, he decided to write a set of songs for Washington and dedicate them in uh, 1787. Mm he wrote one of the first uh, formal songs about Washington called A Toast. And that yeah. might be one we could segue into oh, great. off the CD because yeah. we recorded that. Uh, it was written in 1778 and published in a newspaper, uh, which is interesting because he wrote the melody and yet he didn't have a way to get the melody out in that newspaper. 
You're right. So they can print up what we would like musical bars in a newspaper. They they really they wouldn't do that in yeah. an American newspaper until Franklin died. Mm. The, an ode on Franklin's death by Hopkinson. Yeah, oh yeah. Was the first uh, mm. American newspaper music that had no notation stuck mm. in. It's very expensive to do that. Um, but anyway, so Hopkinson's uh, involvements were many. And uh, here's a great example of him uh, as a uh, fashioning himself as a songwriter of the higher class, mm. taking a very English song style, writing his own new melody, but words honoring George Washington called a toast. Okay, so we'll, we'll listen to that. Tis Washington's health, fill the bumper all round. For he is our glory and pride. Our arms shall in battle with conquest to be crowned. Whilst virtue and he's on our side. Our arms shall in battle with conquest to be crowned. Whilst virtue and he's on our side. What I've come to believe, though, is that Chester was the most popular song of the bicentennial of the American Revolution, <laughs> but it wasn't the most popular song of the Revolution. Yeah. That, I believe, is the song called General Washington, or War and Washington, that was a parody of the British Grenadiers. Can we hear that as that's, well? That's on the recording as right. well. Let's, let's take a let's break take and do a, that. Yeah, let's take a listen. Vain Britons boast no longer with proud indignity. By land your conquering legions, your matchless strength by sea. Since we, your sons, incensed, our swords have girded on. Huzzah, 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 for war and Washington. Well, that was splendid. Well, in this case, you're hearing a tune that, that everybody knew. Mm. I mean, few people knew the Hopkinson Toast, but everybody knew the British Grenadiers. Commonly parodied. Uh, as it, was, it was written in 59 as a stage piece in England, honoring the, these British soldiers, the yeah. Grenadiers. Uh, but as early as 1774, we have an anti-taxation song. Grenadiers are the, are the strongest, the tallest, the shock troops. They, uh, they can storm difficult redoubts. They were tough. And they had their reputation for that. And they carried hand grenades, and they were served by fusiliers who, who lit the fuses. Mm. Um, so to take, you know, your enemies, one of your enemies' most sacred songs, which is what Dickinson did with that other song I mentioned before, Hearts of Oak, you take your enemies' most sacred melodies and you write new words against them. Yeah. It's a very powerful thing. So British Grenadiers, it, it remains parodied and reparodied and these uh, guys are like the weird al yankovics of the uh, revolutionary <laughs> exactly. era here um, we should do more of this parodying uh, of our enemies music although i don't know if it we would do. Have, I, have the same impact i wrote in <laughs> in college i wrote a, a, a song against Idi Amin to the tune of rocky raccoon by the beatles and uh, <laughs> people thought it was a hoot that is good no that's <laughs> yeah well uh, okay so um so I'm sorry. So who wrote that uh, that parody? Of uh, jo Jonathan Mitchell Sewell okay. is the name of, of the author of the lyrics. Right. And um, it's a it's a very different kind of a text. It's it, it's interesting. It has allusions to the Bible. It has allusions mm. to the um, oh what are they called? Not Grimm's, but the. Um, uh, the dog and the bone, yeah. the f Aesop's yeah, fables. Aesop's yeah, there's a reference to yeah. the dog and the bone in Aesop's fables, mm -hmm. and and it, and the words are very tightly crafted, um, but they circulated so very widely. In mm. fact, the version that you heard is based on an 1813 publication, so it was still in print, um, very much, you know, 40, 50 years almost after. It yeah. shows up in, in 76. So what do we know about Washington's use of music in his army, uh, if anything? I mean, is he following traditional uh, European style? I mean, does he have bands with the troops regularly or not? Probably not as much as a, as the European army would, given the lack of resources. But what, what do we know? And what's your general impression there? 
it's not my special field. So yeah, well, speaking off, off the cuff, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we know anywhere near as much about the bands of music yeah. that he would have hired uh, because often that's off the record mm. and, and it's not part of the public um, payroll. Yeah. It was out of his pocket. Um, but of course, you know, with the impressions uh, from Valley Forge, when von Steuben, of course there are von Steuben marches and stuff that were written to honor him. But that was very much a part of, of uh, systematizing and bringing the American army up to snuff mm. was to specify the numbers of fifers, the numbers of drummers, what they would be paid um, to uh, establish John Highwell as the first superintendent of music mm. of, the, of the army. And for him to broadcast out and downward how often the musicians were to rehearse and what their appropriate yeah. roles were to be with yeah, the, the army. The precision of the of the movements in the army mm -hmm. relates to the precision of the music. Absolutely, and what a lot of people don't understand is it was also in a method of communication. That's mm -hmm. how the orders were given from the mm -hmm. top down through the ranks was to were to play specific signals, more so on the drums than the fifes, to communicate with rhythmic patterns attack, retreat to arms, things, mm. really important stuff to, yeah. to communicate that. So for Washington, at, uh, at, so let's talk about church music for his experience mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, he, we know he's a vestryman at Pohick Church. He's also a vestryman at other churches. Uh, he goes to church. What is he hearing in, in, a, in a late colonial Anglican Virginia church? He's hearing pretty conservative yeah. English psalmody, P-S-A-L-M, a, -L -M, a yeah. psalm as mm -hmm. opposed to a song. The, if you go back to the whole Protestant Reformation and then break away from the Catholic Church, um, the whole idea was to simplify the music and to get away from big flashy organs and choirs and trumpets and that sort of thing. And so, excuse me, the Anglican Church in its break away from the Catholic Church uh, followed the prescription that the music should be based simply on the Book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. And uh, many people today still know a couple of the tunes that he would have sung in church, like Old 100. Okay. Um, yeah. Some of the words published in, up in Massachusetts in the 17th century would have found their way into some of the, the services uh, that he would have attended. Like there, there would, would there have been organs? Would there have been? Rarely. Yeah. It, because many of these churches were country churches. Right. Many of them were even called Chapel of Ease was the term, mm -hmm. so that the planters didn't have to travel so far to go all the way to you know, the closest town. Yeah. So in many cases, the Psalms would have been led by a clerk or by the minister, and they would have been done in what's called call and response, or you know, yeah, singing like back and forth. Sort of well, yeah, the, the minister would sing, you know, shout to Jehovah all the earth, and everyone would answer back, shout to Jehovah. But usually they'd do it slower and out of tune and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let <laughs> me do it then. Shout <laughs> to Jehovah all the earth. Oh, no, that's in tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are great accounts of that, and in fact, their vestry records, getting back to where uh, I was looking at this in Maryland, which is essentially equivalent to Virginia yeah. in the church life, mm. um, that there were times when the vestry just said, hey, don't even try to sing, just speak them. You yeah. know, just get them done with. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, see, you see that at different <laughs> services today, yeah. still there's the ones with music and the ones without. Well, here's uh, the other thing, though, that would surprise us. The Anglican Church in the Chesapeake had no oversight between the Bishop of London hmm. and Pohick Church. And in many cases, the people who were ministers were political appointees who were given perks and they were often allowed to be the tax collectors for the local port and they show up in taverns drinking and playing fiddles <laughs> and <laughs> I, I can't speak to the Virginia ministers but just in Annapolis there some of these guys were quite musical it was always a challenge yeah, yeah I think with the ministers in Virginia mm -hmm. you, you know you you had the the great men like Washington mm -hmm. and there on the vestry the you know fighting with the ministers <laughs> and about whether they're good enough and whether they have the right background and whether they can do it. So. Well, things really changed in yeah. after the revolution. And yeah. so later in, in, um, in Washington's life, he would have observed much more formalized mm. services, and certainly in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, the, the singing school yeah. uh, movement would have worked its way to Philadelphia by the 60s, actually. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, Washington, of course, is well-traveled. So he, he went to a church service in Boston in the 1750s at King's Chapel, mm. which was the one Episcopal 
Gospel Anglican Church mm-hmm. in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, where he might have seen something quite different than he would have seen in the Virginia churches. Well, he could have heard yeah. some very high quality music. Mm. The mm. this whole singing school movement goes back to 1720 mm. in New England, mm. and by the 30s and 40s, there were young people. It, it was sort of the only fun they were allowed to have. <laughs> they all, in fact, there's a great quote from a Yale student in the 1740s. I can't wait to go off to singing class and get some more of that niggling and kissing and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Private journal. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I guess with John Wesley's music would have been would that have been known in America in the some. 18th century yet, or is that more it comes in the 19th century? Some Wesley's because it was so the first Great yeah. Awakening. I mean, did. With did, under did, George Whitfield, yeah, did Whitfield bring yeah. over any kind of musical? Well, yeah, very much. I mean, uh. Whitfield and the Wesley. You know, John Wesley was the first. Um, he was appointed to serve there at Fort Frederica in Georgia in 1735 yeah. when they arrived, and um, he was very uh, dis. Um, <laughs> what was the right word? Unimpressed <laughs> with yes. any music that he saw going on yeah, in Georgia at the time. Frontier, and. Yeah, some of the Wesley's earliest compositions are published in and circulate in America. Mm. Um, Charlestown Tune is one we perform, and, oh, yeah. and it's dedicated to the city of Charleston. Mm. Um, but whether Washington would have heard that, the other thing you get into, of course, is that the Methodists are sort of an evangelical yeah, offshoot, of the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and their music won't get really well established until after the Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know, did he visit a Moravian church? That would have That's been a, a whole different question. experience. That's a very good question. Because these guys were super advanced. They were playing concerted music like J.S. Bach had been writing before. That's a good question. Yeah. I, I, that's one for someone to tweet out for Wait, us. Wait, I know he did. Yes, he visited Old Salem. Did he? I played there at the anniversary of it. Ah. Yeah, he was down there. And he would have heard trombone choirs. He would have heard people singing in four-part harmony and... Hmm. Music that really you would drop the needle and think, oh, that's George Frederick Handel or that's J.S. Bach. Mm. The Moravians were doing in America. Really? They were very advanced. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So he had the theater music. He had the balls. He had the, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the, the, the religious music of different types mm-hmm. uh, in his life. Uh, what about tavern culture? Washington, uh, I don't know. Where, what are we missing? What is the... Well, the sailors or the soldiers. He would have overheard stuff. I mean, he was a military stuff, obviously. Well, think of um, in the slave quarters. What would he have heard? That's where I was going to get. Yeah, Yeah, in the 18th century, what would you have heard? He would have heard field hollers, and he would have heard Mm -hmm. uh, work songs uh, associated. Some of the stuff that that actually eventually would evolve into the blues. Yeah, into um, something you know very very specific to the deep south. Um, he would have heard uh, music in African tongues. Mm. He would have heard banjos, uh, djembe drums. Now, technically, slaves were forbidden by law to build drums, but they did, you know, for fear of insurrection. Right, yeah, it's a way to communicate over yeah. a long distance. Um, he would have heard all kinds of stuff. And another avenue into his world is through uh, one of his officers, Captain George Bush. Mm. Not a Texas Bush, but a <laughs> Delaware Bush. <laughs> Uh, Captain yeah. Bush was an amateur fiddler, and he was wounded at Brandywine and later did administrative work for Washington. Yeah. But uh, his music book survives, and we know he's got soldier songs, he's got theater songs, dance tunes, marches. Mm. Um, he's got that song about Martha okay. uh, called um, Lady Washington. Shows up in his... And just mm. so happens that yeah. my lady and <laughs> that Ginger uh, recorded well, that Let's song take a listen to that if sure. we could. Some new 
Well, that was great. An entirely different kind of music. Yeah. And uh, what's what's odd about it is it's almost a folk song, mm. and and yet it's about Martha, and it shows up before. Well, some something. So when it, is it written? When, what do we know? Well, about we don't it? know for sure. But mm. Kate Kate Keller, who did all this marvelous work, seems to think it might have come straight out of the Battle of Monmouth. Really? Yeah. The fact that Martha followed George on all the winter campaigns, and the fact that the idea of what you know of her wandering the battlefields. Obviously, she never wandered a battlefield, but the just the idea of people romanticizing her looking for her husband, George, mm. who's been out prosecuting war. Mm. Um, it's a tune that, that shows up in broadsides for decades after this. Mm. It, it's, a, it's a pop mini hit, not a major hit, but That's a mini fascinating. hit. That's fascinating. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen that referenced in a Martha biography. That's what I was getting at before, yeah. is that the yeah, biographers don't the think... Yeah. Uh, excuse me. That's a that's a gross generalization. Ouch. More and more, no. people are looking to music as a viable line of evidence mm. upon which to base history. Yeah. But especially if you go further back in time, um, I, I I look at you know, I look at a book and I just am amazed that it, it's never even indexed. Yeah. Music, dance. It's uh, a missed opportunity there, particularly yeah. with someone like Martha, where, you know, her story, we'd love to see more of her story mm -hmm. reflected even in the biographies of George Washington. But, um, you know, there's there's limitations that there's but but this popular side of Martha, I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm trying to think of who would have written on that as much. But, I, uh, I perused. Well, yeah. that was really the, the first thing I set out to. Uh, here mm. this past summer yeah. was to work on that little book, The Bullfinch, yeah. uh, that's here in the library. So explain The Bullfinch for our, our Bullfinch, friends out there. Bullfinch is a, a bound two-part collection of songs. And it is all based on the elite music of the London stage. Yeah. It's from the theaters, from the pleasure gardens of London. And uh, of the hundreds of songs, there are almost 400 songs, I think. Mm. It's very thick, the book, it, yeah. It's thick and small, mm. and it has no musical notation, mm. which is okay if it's all familiar tunes, but I really wonder how she would have used that book. Yeah. You'd have to go to a different source, I think, to get the score to a certain opera to line up the music with the words you have in your book. Maybe it was more intended to be even read as poetry mm. or to just hum if you knew the song. So but this is sort of fashionable society, it's all women in particular in this case? Well, it, it was kind of many of, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's sort of, well, so the, mm -hmm. like a, a finishing of a, of a properly raised yes. woman like Martha, or like Nellie, mm -hmm. something she should have. Kind of. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's and about nymphs and things like that. Exactly. <laughs> Daphne and Chloe and and yeah. running out through the woods and stuff. And, and idealized 18th yeah. century neoclassical kind of world. Right. But it's yeah. a significant piece, of course, because we think it's it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest place, uh, that Washington writes out her new married name, Martha mm. Washington, 1759. It arrives just after they were married, I think in March of 59. Okay. Now she had ordered it before the yeah. wedding, along with another music book that couldn't be had at that time. But um, anyway, I, I spent a lot of time sort of looking through it and thinking, you know, what is the significance of this? And, and I think you've already sort of described it. It, it was a, uh, a little ribbon of mm. gentility. Mm. I don't know that she used it a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I decided to gravitate more toward let's get the story out more widely, especially through the digital encyclopedia. Yeah. Of you know how how can we really understand the story of Mount Vernon and the story of George Washington better? That's why I jumped on Hopkinson right away because he's such a central player. S so are the essays out now in the digital encyclopedia? Or are they on their way? They're Two of them are up. Great. And and, and the other thing. This and what is are the what are these entries on? Well, they're on the Bullfinch, oh, the, the Bullfinch. music book, yeah. and on Francis Hopkinson. Francis. But these are the first entries now to be multimedia because yeah. I, I really want to bring in the video footage based on work that we've done in the past right. and, and audio samples. And uh, I know that's done brilliantly throughout the Mount Vernon website elsewhere. Yeah. But for the, the more scholarly leaning digital encyclopedia, um, 
this is something, even though I'll be wrapped up here this week, uh, I'll keep doing anyway because I love it. That's great. Well, we appreciate that work, David. We've been we've been talking for an hour already, so we'll wrap it up. But I, I look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. And I would encourage everybody to go out there to uh, download some of these songs that you've heard today and also many other things that David Hildebrand and Ginger Hildebrand have out there on iTunes. Or sign up for the Teacher Institutes if, yeah. if you're eligible for that. We often and we'll we'll definitely keep your eye on the library programming yeah. uh, page, too, because we'll be doing some things with David uh, uh, throughout uh, the future here as well. So thank you so much for you're joining welcome. us, and uh, uh, look forward to seeing that work. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.